All right, we feel like we're good now? All right, good. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll uh, have the screens up in the, on the text up on the screens behind me in just a second. That's, I say it every week. How do I mess that up? Um, uh, but we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. We believe that God uses uh, his word, the scriptures, for all kinds of really awesome, amazing purposes. But the chief thing he uses it for, the, the top of the mountain, is to make himself known to his people. Our God speaks, and he speaks through his word we call the scriptures, and he wants you to know him, and he wants your life to be uh, defined by, shaped by, understood through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then, then you need to be digging into them to the best of your ability. Uh, and so if you don't have a Bible that you can call yours, uh, take that physical one home. We'll call it the best part of our day. Um, so we're walking through the book of James together, uh, week number 14 uh, in our effort. It's taken us a while. And if you've been here for the whole thing, you must think that we're absolutely flying right now, right? Uh, for those of you who, you who were here the whole time, we took nine weeks to cover all of chapter one, all right? And then we took three weeks to cover chapter two. And as of today, we're going to finish chapter three in only two weeks. Oh, the humanity, all right? We're just absolutely sailing. Uh, if you haven't been here, though, James is a letter, uh, kind of a general letter written to all Christians uh, that have been scattered out from uh, the city of Jerusalem into all of these new places uh, in Asia Minor and uh, kind of Upper Palestine and all those kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, Jewish background Christians that had all been huddled together in Jerusalem uh, under the threat of persecution just flee out of the city, we're told. Everybody but the apostles are left, uh, leave town. Uh, and so James is kind of riding into this weird mixture of people because they, these Jewish background Christians flee into these very not Jewish background areas, these Gentile heavy areas. Uh, and the gospel continues to go forward. Uh, the gospel is heard by Gentiles. It's believed by Gentiles. Churches spring up in all of these new locations, all right? And so um, now for the very first time, you've got multiple cultures making up a singular church, which sounds really nice and sweet, but it also causes a lot of drama, right? There's, all, there's, there's sparks that fly because people think differently and operate differently and value different things, all right? And so you need a clear definition between what is distinctly Christian and what's just some baggage left over from Jewish background and custom. And that's the debate that James wades into in this letter. And the answer is a little more complicated than just a to-do list. In fact, it's a lot more complicated than that. James argues that while you can never earn salvation by righteous works of faith, the authentic faith of someone who has been truly saved, truly reconciled to God, they are always going to be dragging righteous works along with them. It's part of the deal. Faith and works are not the same thing, and you should never confuse the two. But neither are they mutually exclusive things. They're buddies that are always hanging out together. And so the question becomes, okay, but like, like give me some things. Give me some stuff I can latch on to. What are, what are some actual things that I need to do? Actual things that I can look at. What kind of righteous works accompany an authentic faith? And James gives a handful of Really quick examples at the end of chapter 1 that he, I think, commits to or intends to flesh out in fuller detail throughout the rest of the letter. Those three things are how we treat other people, 
all right? How we view our own sin and the threat that it bears on the, the things that we're supposed to value. And three, how we control our tongue. In other words, what's coming out of our mouth. And it's that third one that we looked at pretty heavily last week. James argues that even though we tend to overlook the importance of the tongue, even though we tend to think that it's not that big a deal, it's an incredibly misguided belief because the reverse is actually true. Our tongues have an outsized influence on who we are and where we're going. Like the rudder on a ship or a bit in a horse's mouth, the tongue is doing the steering. It may be small, but the tongue is pointing where we go. And so if you're not in control of your tongue, well, that means that your tongue is in control of you. Which sounds like a problem, right? We all going to agree that that's a problem? In the words of James, brothers, this ought not to be so. Right? But where does what's coming out of our mouth originate? Right? It's one thing to, to say that you've locked the tongue down and you've got it, you know, you're making it do your will and all these kinds of things, but... Like, what's producing the righteous or wicked things that flow over said tongue? Well, that's what James, I think, wants to get into next. Ready to get into it? James has a question he wants to ask his audience. Look at verse 13. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of of wisdom. All right, so if you haven't noticed yet, James likes to set traps, right? That's exactly what this is. He likes to ask rhetorical questions, just hoping that his audience won't stop to think before they open their mouth, all right? That's, that's precisely the case here. He did the same thing back in chapter two. He sets another trap right here. James says, oh, you consider yourself wise, huh? You, you think that you're full of understanding. Oh, you think that's, those are things that you excel in. Great, let's talk about it. James says that faith isn't the only thing that has a measurable, testable fruit. Godly wisdom is testable as well. And that test are your conduct and works defined by meekness. Um, let's be honest. Meekness isn't exactly seen as a positive thing in our culture, is it? Right? Right? In fact, I, I personally most often see it used as a pejorative, as an insult. As people, we don't want to be thought of as meek. We certainly don't want our politicians to be seen as meek. But while that's true in our own culture, comparatively speaking, meekness is actually a far more derided thing to James's audience. They see it worse than we do. We may scoff at the idea, lob it out as some kind of backhanded taunt, uh, but to the culture James is writing this letter into, they openly revile the idea of meekness. By my estimation, two uh, kind of problems uh, emerge when it comes to our culture and their own, when when it comes to how we see meekness. I see two problems. Uh, First of all, I think meekness gets a lazy definition, right? It gets a lazy definition. It's rare to see the word used as anything other than a straight synonym for weakness. Is that how you've seen it? Definitely how it it pops up on the screen when I look at it. It, it, It's usually used as as a timidness that's incapable of doing the hard thing when everybody else thinks it's necessary to do the hard thing. In fact, that idea has become so ingrained in our culture that if you were to Google it right now, just 
look up the definition of timidness, you're going to be seeing it defined in strictly negative ways. That's what I saw this week when I googled it. Unfortunately, words are very, very flexible things. And they always end up meaning whatever a culture uses them to mean, even if that culture you know, just kind of corrupts wonderfully nuanced words for lazy purposes. We're guilty of that, right? If you need another example to believe me, to look at our culture's current definition of love. It's a dumpster fire. But the word meekness is never used in a negative way in the Bible. That's not how it's framed. Meekness and weakness are not synonyms. They're not. It would be better to fit, uh, better fit to try to define meekness as a synonym of restraint. Restraint. A calculated withholding of power for a worthy cause. And in a biblical definition, meekness is rooted in the reality that you don't have to be the strong one because Jesus is handling that job for you. You don't have to be the fighter and to defend your cause because in calling you his own, Jesus made you his cause. So you can let some things slide, even, even things that are somewhat injurious to you because well, you've got your eyes set on a much greater prize. And that leads to the second problem I see with how we tend to view the concept of meekness. Not only does it get subjected to a lazy definition, but I think meekness also tends to get subjected to a lazy purpose. A lazy purpose. See, when all you have is an earthly timescale and earthly ambitions, the idea of showing restraint for something other than just some really quick, temporary, strategic purpose, that's a completely foreign idea to people, Right? In fact, it's antithetical to how most people believe that the world works. In fact, I think it's antithetical to how most people believe that cultures and societies thrive. Um, it's true in our own culture, but into the Hellenized and Latinized minds of a bunch of people in James's audience, I think it's especially true. Meekness is how a culture fails to them. It's a generational slip in a, in a pathway to societal ruin. But Jesus comes in, and he starts teaching wildly preposterous things like, the meek shall inherit the earth. In what universe, sir? That's not what I'm seeing with my eyes. He calls himself gentle and lowly, words that have the same Greek root as meekness. And either, either, Jesus is a moron or Jesus understands ultimate reality better than everybody else understands ultimate reality. Hey, which one do you think it is? Jesus takes, Jesus takes a base level assumption held by pretty much everyone that's ever existed and he turns it completely upside down. He says, this is what my kingdom values and this is what my kingdom citizens pursue. So I want them to be. And either Jesus is right, or man, Jesus is very, very, very wrong. And so back to James. James tells his audience that 
Godly wisdom has some things that we can measure, but that measurement is not an IQ test, and it's not an EQ test, and it's not a measurement of how successful you've been with your career or your finances or your relationships, and it's not even a measurement of how many people come to you asking for advice. No, James says that the real test for godly wisdom is someone's meekness before God buried in their conduct and their works of faith. In other words, The truly spiritually wise are those who live and act today, right now, as if they have been truly reconciled to God by the grace of God. And that reconciled relationship can be seen all over everything they do. You can touch it. They rightly understand who God is, and they rightly understand who they are. And in that right understanding, it is naturally fleshed out a measurable meekness. A posture-level, calculated restraint that doesn't have to come out on top in a given situation because their value and their status and their positioning are never rooted in that anyways. They're rooted in an eternal victory. Okay, okay. Cool, 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 cool. So what's the opposite of meekness? What do I have to avoid? When James gets to that, gets to that in verse 14, he says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James says that there's an inconsistency between a right understanding of how you relate to God and a heart that's always trying to get more and more and more and more self-exaltation. Those two things are, shouldn't, they're not friends and they can't cohabitate. No, no, that, that doesn't mean that all ambition is bad, not even close. It doesn't mean that aiming for growth or advancement and fill in the blank is out of bounds for the Christian. James clearly frames uh, these, this posture with very specific vocabulary words. He says, jealousy and selfish ambition. Ain't, ain't nobody in here going, yeah, I want me more of that. Work and building and cultivating, those are all pre-fall realities and they will one day be post-redemption realities as well. Those are good things. The Bible is clear to call them good things. But like every single other good created thing that I've ever come across, my sinful heart is really, really, really quick to make a mess of it. How about yours? We twist them. We exacerbate those good things. We yank those good things out of God's good purpose for them and insert our own. Am I the only one that does that? Every single one of us in here, myself included, has sometimes been guilty of taking what was obviously birthed out of jealousy and selfish ambition and justifying it as some kind of good thing. Prettying up with noble or even religiously sounding excuses and then running full steam ahead. I've often been guilty of moments where I didn't care what it cost me and I didn't care what it cost other people. And sadly, there have even been some moments where I didn't care what it cost the cause of the gospel. I was going to go get mine. Right? But meekness is a core level character trait of God's people. Full stop. 
It's not up for debate. It's not something that we get to pick up and put down whenever it's convenient to pick up and put down. According to Jesus, and now according to the Apostle James, meekness is a non-negotiable. If your ambition is rooted in making sure that you, know, you stand a little taller than the person next to you, if you, your personal advancement doesn't mind stepping on a couple of you know, less important others in order to get there, if you getting fill-in-the-blank is really just about so-and-so not getting fill-in-the-blank, James says you need to quit claiming to have a godly wisdom and understanding because you're a liar. The, you're false to the truth, he says. And out of all the grenades that James has lobbed in this letter, this is maybe one of the biggest ones, right? But what in the world do we do with that? Is James just a jerk? Does he not understand how, how things actually work? Is he just some hater throwing shade at all those who are trying to make something of themselves, hustling and trying to, to, to dig out something for, for their good? Well, James is going to link jealousy and selfish ambition to something much deeper and much darker in verse 15. Look at it with me. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So according to James, the opposite of godly meekness is not neutrality. You're not just sitting there. No, the opposite of a godly meekness is an incredibly ungodly selfishness masquerading as wisdom. That's what he says. If you were wondering, this problem is literally as old as Genesis 3. We've seen this story before. Uh, the serpent comes in and he presents a counter wisdom to the wisdom that God first gave to his people, right? And, and just like in the garden, that counter wisdom is a deceptive wisdom, right? Uh, it sounds enlightening. It sounds like it's going to be, bring freedom out of bondage, but it was a lie. It was a giant lie. That deceptive counter wisdom ends up robbing God's people of all the good things that God wanted for them. It leads to death and it leads to emptiness and it leads to despair. It leads to breaking relationships not only between man and God, but between man and everybody else. The very moment that sin entered into the world, what did we do? We immediately started hiding ourselves because we can't possibly be as vulnerable as that can't trust you. Too risky for me. And as soon as God shows up to question that very first sin, we're already blaming each other for the fallout. What James is talking about here dates all the way back to Genesis 3. The language that James uses here to talk about this deceptive wisdom, it's a language that devolves deeper and deeper and deeper into calamity. Did you catch it? It's first described as earthliness. And then it's being generally unspiritual. But it ultimately, it ultimately ends up being something that's outright demonic. I know we live in a culture where people hear that word and immediately we think of horror movies or maybe some urban legend that you had in your hometown growing up, those kinds of things. I'm, I'm guilty of that too. I fall victim to it. But the Bible gives a much, much loftier view of motives and nuanced strategy when it comes to demonic influence. 
The Bible's not playing games here. Uh, the titles that the Bible gives to our enemy are titles like liar, accuser, serpent, a prowling lion ready to devour, uh, the king of this world, right? One of the best strategies in a war is to make your enemy grossly underestimate you. Not think it's worthy of preparing for you. The Bible paints the picture that Satan's tactics haven't really changed since the days of the garden. He's still offering up a deceptive counter-wisdom. I know God said, but I mean, look at this. He's still promising enlightenment that only ever leads to despair. He's still promising liberation that only ever leads to more bondage. And in verse 16, James suggests that it is standard demonic policy to use jealousy and selfish ambition already in your sin-bent heart. Why? Because jealousy and selfish ambition produce their own natural fruit. They always end up leading to disorder and vile practice, he says. Does that mean that the world is as sinful as it could be? No, it doesn't. Does that mean that everyone who claims to know Jesus is standing on the righteous side of things and everybody who doesn't know Jesus or can only, you know, are only chasing what could rightly be called vile? I don't think that's true. I don't, think that, I don't even think that's close. Christians are absolutely capable of grotesque sin. We've seen it. I've seen it. I've committed it. Christians can absolutely fail in these things. We are absolutely capable of getting something very, very wrong. And and the non-Christian is absolutely capable of pursuing things that end up being good things to God. Theologians call that reality common grace. Right? But what exactly is the logical end of selfishness and jealousy and the wrong kind of ambition? I mean, what positive results could it ultimately have? These postures are only ever going to end up in one place, right? See, regardless of what you think about our current state of the culture wars that we find ourselves in, the Bible is pretty clear that we didn't just suddenly find ourselves here. We didn't just wake up one morning and stare out the window at a completely new world. It's been a slow and steady devolution that sprang first out of the people making up this world, trading a godly meekness for an incredibly ungodly selfishness masquerading as wisdom. Hey, you know what happens when you reject God as as king? You always put something else on the throne. Usually yourself. Our culture has not suddenly arrived at thinking the autonomous self was Lord and God. No, first we believed that, that God was not good. And then we believed the lie that he was holding out on us because, you know, he kept those titles for himself. And if we want to be happy, we're going to have to go get it ourselves. History has seen this play before. So what's the alternative, right? Like, I mean, this letter so far, we've been walking through the letter of James. And just, like, it's been chiefly about a measurable proof of an authentic faith, right? That, that's the main message of the book of James. That, that those who have been genuinely reconciled to God by God have a number of things in their lives and postures that are obviously different from the, rest, the way that the rest of the world lives and postures themselves. That's the message of James. So if jealousy and selfish ambition uh, produce specific fruit, what then does the, does the wisdom of a godly meekness produce? 
James is going to tell us in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James argues, James argues that those who are instructed by a godly and meek wisdom will produce a natural fruit as well. And then he lists off a number of really lovely sounding things, right? Like who doesn't want those things? I, I want those things. I hope you want those things. You know, soft purity and gentleness and impartiality and sincerity. Like it's amazing what taking our hands off the controls will produce. That's some good stuff. You become a peacemaker, he says, used by God to produce a practical righteousness in others. You got a whole harvest of it. It's a good day. These are all things that are really, oh, nobody ought to be dumb enough to say they don't want. I don't know about your, what you've experienced, though. I find it more likely that people will give lip service to these things only so long as they don't get in the way of what they're really chasing after. But here's James's point. These things are all diametrically opposed to jealousy and selfish ambition. As soon as jealousy and selfish ambition enter the conversation, you you can't really have any of these other things. To actually pursue these things, you got to be running in the opposite direction of that. And so the question becomes, what would ever cause somebody to run in the opposite direction? Right? I mean, I can get some stuff done with some jealousy and selfish ambition. I can, I can knock some things out, make something of myself, provide for my family, uh, get a little bit of fame and credit, but if I just had a little more jealousy and selfish ambition in me, harnessed it in a good way, why would I ever want to run the other direction? Church, only the gospel can make you run the other direction. Only the gospel can do that. Only the grace of Jesus can give someone a new heart that loves what God loves instead of what they can get on their own. Only the grace of Jesus can produce a biblical definition and purpose for for meekness. Otherwise, it's something you'll revile. Otherwise, it's something that can only be seen as a generational slip to societal ruin. But the meek will inherit the earth. Meekness is rooted in the reality that you don't have to be the strong one because Jesus has already handled that for you. You don't have to be the fighter and defend your cause because in calling you his own, he has made you his cause. You can let some things slide. Whether the world calls it good or the world calls it injurious, doesn't matter. You can let it go because Jesus is greater and sweeter than all those quote-unquote victories. James tosses out another measuring stick for gauging whether or not someone actually believes the gospel. Regardless of what's coming out of their mouths, watch how they live. 
He says, watch how they live. See, see how they posture themselves. Take note of what they chase after and take note of what they fight for. Observe how the people in between them and what they want get treated for being in between them and what they want. An authentic faith in Jesus changes what you value, period. And it changes what you pursue, period. And it changes what you celebrate, period. It changes you from a posture of having to make sure that you go get yours to a posture of trusting God's goodness and timing, even when the rest of the world has no idea why you trust that. Why would you ever commit yourself to this? Oh, no, you don't know him. He's good. And he's worth it. And I'd rather have him. And over and over again, he proves himself to be better than the thing I was chasing after anyways. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's a weird place to leave things, right? How can, how can we respond to, to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, yet, I think you can fix that today. You can respond to God's word this morning. You can you do that by becoming a follower of Jesus. You meet him. You meet him. Uh, the Bible teaches that everyone by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin. What happens when you reject God as Lord and King? You always end up putting something else on the throne, usually yourself, right? And because of that divine usurpation, the Bible teaches that we are all owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. Like, what, what, what should the rightful king do to traitors who try to depose him? Like, what do you think that deserves? But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are uh, dead in our trespasses and sin, that God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. God sent his son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. And he, he, he died on the cross as an innocent substitute in our place to make full and final payment for our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so that all who call on him as Lord and King who submit themselves to his work on their behalf. They are reconciled to him by him. And you can do that today, man. I'd love to be helpful to you. I, I got, I'm supposed to play music again, but we can talk after we're done. Let's do that. What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How can we respond? Well, God's people ought to respond to God's word being declared the same way every time, with repentance and with pressing into what God reveals about himself in the text, right? Uh, but this week, I think we can add a layer to that. We've got this picture here that specifically exists because Jesus was smart enough to know that we're going to fail in this stuff, right? Okay, how you doing on walking in meekness and in the wisdom of God today? Are you as guilty as I am? No, Jesus, he saw it coming. He saw it coming and he specifically provided a picture for us to remember why he came to die. We need the cross. We need his sacrifice in our place because I can't get it cleaned up. 
I gotta be honest with you, there are more times in my life that I'm comfortable admitting out loud where godly wisdom defined by meekness is not a fair characterization of me. And the good news of the gospel and the message intentionally buried in this picture is that Jesus has made provision for all of my sin. Every ounce of it. The message buried in this picture is that I need him as much today as I did the day I first placed my trust in him and that by his grace he will continue to draw me closer and closer and closer to himself. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe you've been here for a while now and you feel like God's calling you to make our church family your, your home. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient in baptism yet. We can fix that. Let's talk about it. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe been, God's been calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here and it's time to publicly say yes to that calling. I'd love to help you sort out what that, those next steps are. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Jeff's going to come and lead us in celebrating the Lord's Supper together. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, and let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for meekness personified. For coming and being meek for us. And giving us massive promises that following you when the world disagrees is still going to be worth it in the end. Father, would, would you change what we value? And would you change what we pursue? And you change what we celebrate? Give us hearts that trust your goodness in those things. And we are weak. I'm definitely inclined to go get mine. It's so easy sometimes. Show me how sweet you are instead. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Father, for those in here who don't know you, would you call them to yourself right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call men and women into your kingdom this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Do we have any deacons assigned this morning to come on up? To all right, perfect. I'm uh, yeah, and I didn't want to walk up here after that sermon. It man, I needed that like 25, 30 years ago as I was climbing the corporate ladder and throwing off everybody I could that was ahead of me on those rungs and. But as Stephen just pointed to, we're going to remember Christ's sacrifice this morning together. Um, and it's a sacrifice that was needed because we are sinners through and through, especially the guy that's standing right here holding the mic. So we're going to invite you in a moment to come on up and receive the elements. And this morning I would like if we would go back to our seats with those so that we can partake together um, this morning. So before we start coming up, 
we'll just talk about one thing. We are going to partake in the remembrance of Christ's death and his resurrection, and we're going to do that because we are believers. So this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have an open communion that you can come forward if you have your faith placed in Jesus as your Savior, as your Redeemer, and as your Lord. Feel free to please come forward and receive. So I'll have, I guess Stephen's going to, are you going to play a song now, or what are you doing? I'll pick through while they come forward. Okay, perfect. So if everybody would please come forward now and receive, and then (laughs) go back to your seats. understand that we are partaking in this together, acknowledging together the body of Christ this morning that was broken for us.
to Luke's gospel this morning, to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14, we are told this, And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I go here this morning because I'm thinking of Passover when Jesus was celebrating it at this moment. And he says, you know, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What fulfilled? Well, the Passover. In so many ways... Jesus is the one who fulfilled the eternal Passover. And we, we look in Scripture, I, just, I think of the Gospel of John. I just finished reading the Gospel of John again, I think yesterday or the day before. And we're told, you know, so many illustrations that Jesus gives or so many ways that he identifies himself. And, and one of the first ways he's identified is John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is pointing, John is pointing to, to Jesus as that lamb, as the Paschal lamb. Well, what was Passover about? Well, Passover was when the tenth plague was about to hit the people of Egypt, and that tenth plague would be the killing of the firstborn. And the people of, Egypt, of, of Israel and Egypt were instructed to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and to take that blood, to put it on the, the door frame so that when God's wrath, when the destroyer came over that land, he would see the blood and spare those in the house. It was a picture to the, to the destroyer, to the wrath of God, that 
The price has already been paid for those in that house. The blood has already been shed for the remittance of sins. It had already taken place that the firstborn, I mean, we see this picture in Jesus, the firstborn has been sacrificed already. I mean, I think of that. Jesus identified as the, the lamb that was slain. He's identified in John. He says, you know, I am the door. Those who believe will enter through. Those who are saved. He is the door. He is, you know, we're seen in Scripture time and time again where it is his blood that is pointed to. His blood that was sacrificed is pointed to that ultimate sacrifice that buys for you and I our forgiveness of sins and our redemption. That's what we're remembering this morning, that Jesus paid that price. Yes, every one of us has acted in an earthly, unspiritual, demonic manner at times. Every one of us deserves God's wrath if we are judged by our own actions. But yet, every one of us who puts our faith in Christ, who believes upon Jesus on that cross, being crucified for us. Every one of us that puts our hope in Christ's blood, we are redeemed, we are forgiven by what he has done, and that is what we are remembering. So we were just told a minute ago that he took bread and he gave thanks you know, in John, Jesus also says he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. His body broken. And we are remembering that right now. So, Father God, we thank you for this time of remembrance that we can remember the death of our Savior Jesus and how his body was crushed. It was pierced through. It was bruised. How he bled time and time again for us. And we thank you, Father God, as we eat together this morning, as a community of believers who have put our faith in Christ, we thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Amen. You know, I look at the remembrance we have of the cup. You know, I'm thinking to hmm, the death of my father. He had a really painful death over a number of years, and the last time I saw him was the morning he had died, I came in and he was there in the, the bed and something had ruptured and there was blood on his chest. He had bled out. The life truly is in the blood. God says that in Leviticus. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus' blood was shed for us for the remissions of our sins. Father, we thank you for the covenant of Jesus' blood 
that he sacrificed for us that by his own blood being shed, our sins would be forgiven. I mean, he did not know sin, yet he took upon himself our sin, was judged in our place. We thank you for that as we drink together in the name of your son. And as, as Stephen has pointed out in times past, in one of the Gospels it says, after this, they went out into the garden singing a hymn. I think that might be 